Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we're going to jump into studying Scripture and, and savoring it. Not not just reading through it and racing through it, but really sinking our teeth into it and, and savoring it. And we're going to have a, a little a guided tour by Dr. Andy Abernathy. He is a um, author of a book called Savoring Scripture, a six-step guide to studying the Bible. I don't know about you, but I'm all interested. Andy, Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Yeah. So alphabetically speaking, uh, I'm sure you were always seated in the front of the class. I was always seated in the front of the class and, and had locker and first position. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that worked to your advantage, didn't it? Being up front. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it did to my advantage, but the people, I'm tall, so the people behind me didn't <laughs> have, their, uh, yeah. have, have their view blocked. Yeah. So I love uh, I love where you're going with your book, Savoring Scripture. I want to do more and more of that every day, and I know that's a, a wonderful discipline to have is just spending time in God's Word, letting it saturate. So let's talk a little yeah. bit about uh, your book and what, uh, for starters, what just what motivated you to want to write this? Yeah, great question. Uh, there are many motivating factors, but one uh, thought comes to mind, which was about. Ten years ago now, my dad, who'd become a Christian when he was in his mid-30s through um, studying the Bible, actually, was at a Bible study fellowship uh, at the invitation of a friend and studying the Gospel of John and became a Christian through that. And we started going to Bible teaching churches, and my dad uh, read the Bible faithfully. But um, so in that context, he kind of turns to me, who was a professor of the Bible at that time, and he says, you know, Andy, for Christmas, could you get me a book on how to read the Bible better just to get more out of it? And (laughs) here I am, this Bible uh, professor's son, and my brain starts going, and I'm thinking, man, the stuff I'm thinking of would probably give him a lot of things that might help him with a more kind of intellectual side of understanding more of what it's saying, but it also would create more of a distance between him and the Bible and him and God. And then the other side, there are things that were really kind of devotionally oriented, but wouldn't really give him sort of the skills and tools that maybe a more academic approach would help him. And so I didn't think I'd be the one to write the book for him, <laughs> but I think what, what led me to uh, write this was, was really a heart of thinking, how how can we bring some of the skills from more um, academic study of the Bible um, together with a real desire for why we read the Bible in the first place, a desire to meet with God and worship Him and live faithfully in our lives as a result of what we're hearing him say through it. So that's uh, that's the real heartbeat uh, behind the book and savoring scripture. Wow, I love that story, Andy. I, <laughs> first of all, you're, you must have jumped up and down when your dad said that I came to faith in Christ. I've made a decision to follow Jesus. 
Yeah, you know what? I I didn't jump up and down. I scratched my head. I said, "Wait, Dad! I thought we already were Christians." Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was surrounded by Jewish neighbors, and okay, and I'm like, I knew we were Christians, right? We celebrate Christmas, but then it was like, wait a minute, maybe being a Christian's more than just uh, you know having that name sure. or celebrating the holiday. But he he really came to know the saving and good news of Jesus, and mm-hmm. so. Yeah, so I, I I was the beneficiary of, it, oh, of wow. that. So, so then yeah. years and years later, your dad says, Andy, can you give me a book on, on better studying <laughs> Scripture? And you yeah. think, I can write the best book for my dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, exactly. This, this is yeah. a great love story right here. I love yeah. this. Yeah. So I know there's six step, it's a six-step guide to studying the Bible. And I know we don't have a ton yeah. of time, Andy, but I would love to try to touch um, as many of these bases as we could. Yeah, absolutely. You want me to start with the first step? Well, it's about posture. Yeah, it's a, it's with posture. And the idea behind posture is sometimes when you're thinking about, oh, I want to read the Bible better, it, we more just say, okay, our tendency, at least uh, folks I know are like, well, okay, let me just start analyzing it. But if the Bible really is God's Word— and we are human beings, <laughs> we are dependent on God to be the one who makes himself known to us when we study. And what we find in, um, in the Gospels, especially with Jesus, is he really extols this sort of childlike posture. It's essential for entering the kingdom. And in fact, it's a characteristic Jesus praises God for. He says, Father, I praise you that you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, but made them known to children. Now, now, thankfully, the, when he talks about hiding things from the wise and learned, it doesn't necessarily mean just because you're educated, God won't make himself known to you. But, but the idea is sometimes when you feel like you have um, some brain power or a lot of background knowledge, it, there's this pride that sets in. And there's this sense of assuming you've got life and, in their case, God figured out. But it's the humble who God delights in revealing himself to. So, yeah, so the first step is just thinking through as we come to read the Bible, starting with our posture, uh, posture of prayer, childlikeness, inviting God to really make himself known as we're about to read his word. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question you would ask or a listener would say, okay, am I the kind of guy that I, that I would identify more with the wise and the learned yeah. group or would I identify as a little children and would I come in that way? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's a great question for the listeners. Or mm-hmm. I think, do you come with that posture of, of Mary? Uh, who is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, wanting to learn uh, learn from Him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, wh- Andy, what does it take to uh, cultivate this spirit of childlikeness? Well, yeah, well, I mean, when we think about what uh, the way God's made us as human beings, our hearts are just restless and needy without Him. And I think God has a way of wiring in all of our hearts invitations to lean into the brokenness he's put there, lean into seeing our insufficiency to kind of meet our greatest needs. And I think that if we really lean into how God's trying to 
developed this humility in us already, I think that we then lean into that as we're coming coming to the scriptures. So I, I would just there are things we could. I'm not. I wouldn't say okay if you want to develop child, uh, you know, humility, you gotta go in the wilderness for 40 years and then you <laughs> uh-huh. got it, you know. But but to look at how how might God be inviting that in your life and including in reading the Bible. Maybe you're like, oh, I've studied the Bible all my life. And um, I I heard, you know, even when I was a youth pastor at one point, some students said to me once, you know, oh, but we already know this stuff. We already know this book of the Bible. We already know the Gospel of John. But the question is like, well, maybe we should read the Bible for a different reason, not just to kind of build up our, our knowledge base, but to meet with God mm-hmm. and hear what he has to say and savor him through it. So, so there could be ways we, we need to kind of lean into um, this posture of desiring to meet with him more. And when we recognize that, that we can't climb ourselves up to God, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that humility may come more into place for us. Mm-hmm. My tall guest is uh, Dr. Andrew Abernathy. He is a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College and author of several books. Just how tall are you, Andy? Uh, so I'm six foot six. Oh my! And, uh, so and, yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah, just going to be a I'm going to be a basketball play by play guy right now. And another three pointer by Abernathy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Did you play? You know, I, I did play. Yeah, I I um my dad actually played um at IU. Back oh, in the day, he, awesome. he won a championship in the 70s and played in the NBA. So Whoa. basketball was a big part of my um, my upbringing. But it, you, here's what, in college, it was funny. I, I'd been called Andy my whole life. But I, I, in college, I scored two points, and the announcer said, Drew for two. <laughs> so, so there you go. I, they started I calling was, you Drew? I was Drew for, for the rest of those years at, <laughs> at, at, uh, at my college. Oh, that's so. hysterical. That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. All right, I love that yep. side story. Let's uh, jump back in, uh, talk about step two, which is flow. Bi- uh, God yeah. has given us a Bible with a flow, you say. Say more. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, all right, so so you, you prayed and come to the Lord to try to meet with Him. Now, now you turn to that passage you're about to read. And sometimes when we read passages, we sometimes turn off our brain and just kind of start floating over a passage, waiting for something to kind of maybe pop out at us. That's kind of what I call the Ouija board approach to reading the Bible. But the what God, when he inspired these authors to write, they had a thought in mind that kind of progressed from one verse to the next, to the next, to the next. So the question is, like, when you're reading a passage, how how can you figure out how all these verses are relating together into one kind of flow of thought? Mm-hmm. And I find for my students, this is where their ability to read and understand a passage and what, what the whole of the passage is kind of driving towards is when their kind of reading of the Bible kind of goes to the next level for them. So I give some tips in this uh, chapter about kind of figuring out what those subunits are, the different kind of groups of verses in your passage are, and, and then how those fit together. Um, and 
yeah, so so that's what I have in mind with, mm-hmm. with flow, flow of thought. Yeah, so you take something like Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Is that like one of the subunits you talk about? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And then if we go on to the next uh, subunit within uh, Psalm 121, you see, yeah, it continues to develop with this idea of God being the helper, but then from there, we end up seeing that this helper in verses three and four is the next subunit is the one who will not let your foot slip. Indeed, he watches over you and doesn't sleep. Love that. He who watches over you will neither sleep nor slumber. So, so you're starting to see, okay, the, it started with who, where does my help come from? Mm-hmm. And now it's developing and say, well, the, the one from whom this help comes from is the one who neither slumbers or sleeps. He's always watching over you. So, And then you just continue that throughout the rest of the psalm of thinking about how these different groups of verses are relating together in an unfolding sort of way. Mm-hmm. Andy, let me take a break. Dr. Andrew Abernathy is my guest, or Drew for two, I like to call him. <laughs> We'll be right back. Is the author of his book, uh, author of the book called "Savoring Scripture: A Six-Step Guide to Studying the Bible." We'll be right back. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ, or to chat with someone about it, just text the word "faith." To 41224. Savoring Scripture is our topic today. My guest is Dr. Andrew Abernathy. He's written a book called That Very Thing Savoring Scripture, a six step guide to studying the Bible. And Andy, chapter two, when you talk about the flow, it looks super interesting. I wish we could spend more time in it. I want to move away from it. But a question to ask, leaving the idea of studying the flow, is adopting the practice of seeing God as the main character uh, as you read the biblical narrative. And that might be different from how you've done it in the past. Yeah, yeah, I think think you're right. Yeah, so when you're looking at, like, the stories in the Bible, the, the narratives, Sometimes we read them with an eye towards, hey, who are these other human characters I see in here, and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and how do I model my behavior after theirs? And occasionally you see some good examples of human behavior. Often you see bad examples that maybe you can learn from. But what these these stories often have is God shows up as the main character in all these stories. You're, you're looking at uh, these narratives for where God steps in, usually at the climax of the story, to really show himself to be faithful in carrying out his story of redemption. So that's one tip for the listeners mm-hmm. is to say, where's God showing up here in this this story as I'm looking for the flow? How's God fitting into it? Um, so that that's, uh, yeah, that, I'm really glad you brought that up. Mm-hmm. And another uh, step, Andy is is uh, context, and that's context, and that's always such a big one. So yeah. I would love for you yeah. to talk about uh, how important the historical context is. That that's right. Yeah. So so step three is that context step. You're you're recognizing okay when God has given us these passages, He's given these 
passages as part of words that were spoken to people in a context um, that is, in some cases, 2,000 years ago in the New Testament, but in other cases, three or more 1,000 years ago in the Old Testament. So we have to kind of recognize, okay, God has given us a Bible where he was speaking to people in original context, and if we're attentive to that original context, we're going to be able to understand more and uh, of this passage, and, and it will protect us also from just imposing some of our own, you know, modern concepts into the Bible um, as well. So, so it really helps us listen to uh, the passage more carefully in light of what was trying to be said through the passage to the original uh, audience. It's always important to ask those questions, you know, when is this taking place, where is it taking place, and, yeah. and how does this passage fit within the culture of the time? Yeah, yeah, so those are the three questions I give, and in the book I have maps where you can say, oh, here's here's where the—it's just good to say, okay, wh- where is this taking place geographically, or within the timeline of, of the old historical context of the Old Testament— when is this taking place, mm-hmm. you know, and then being alert culturally. And, um, you know, so what I find sometimes people feel like, well, that's just something that scholars might know about the historical context. There are some wonderful study Bibles out there with great historical insight. And you don't have to know everything about the ancient historical context to be able to benefit from a, a, a just a small shift in perspective of asking, okay, what might this have meant in an original context? Mm-hmm. And you gradually grow over time um, in, in being able to just be more discerning historically. Mm-hmm. Dr. Andy Abernathy is my guest. His book is Savoring Scripture, a six-step guide to studying the Bible. And in, in your uh, book, Andy, you have a, a confrontation with it's it's a kind one, but it's one with your sister in law where they're yeah. basically saying, you know, so Andy, we're studying First Samuel in my women's Bible study. This week we were studying First Samuel fourteen, and we had no clue how it might apply, how it might apply to us. What are your thoughts? I mean, I would imagine Bible teachers get that question all the time, and we ask questions like that all the time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and for, for the listeners, First Samuel 14 is this really weird passage where uh, King Saul's son, Jonathan, is off fighting battles kind of with a small group of band in Israel. And during that time, Saul's like, hey, if anybody eats anything today, they'll die. And then <laughs> we, we see Jonathan eating honey, and then Saul's about to kill his kid, but everyone, you know... Um, it says, no, Saul, don't do it. Um, it, it. You know, you're like, what do we do with this passage, yeah. right? And um, and you can start getting towards the answer by asking the simple question of why has this passage been included here in the book? And this relates to the idea of literary context or the book context it's part of. And when you put that passage in the context of what's happening before and after, that chapter, it's all in a scene where King Saul is sinning against the Lord and is being told that God is going to remove the uh, dynasty from King Saul and is going to anoint a new king whose heart aligns with the Lord. And so when you have that perspective, you're like, all of a sudden, 
first Samuel 14 is like, oh, this is helping me see why Saul is not a good king and is not a king after God's own heart. Here he's on the brink of killing and sacrificing his own child. Um, and he's also not the one out fighting battles. Instead, his son Jonathan is. And so it's preparing in the flow of First, uh, uh, First Samuel for the anointing of David, whose heart is so much different than Saul's. So again, just learning to ask that question of why is it here in this book um, goes a long way to getting some perspective on, on how to interpret um, that passage. Mm-hmm. And you get us thinking in your book, uh, Andy, things like, let's look at, I don't want to do it right now, but if we were to take, for example, Psalm 23 and say, what does this passage say about God and how is this reflected in Jesus? And, yeah. and what do you find? And to me, I'm going, yeah. oh, more please. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. It's that, that's the fourth step of yeah. saying this passage has been given to us as part of a whole Bible that's going to center upon Jesus. So let's pause now and ask, wow, how does this passage um, relate to Jesus and to in what God and, is doing and as he relates to the church today? So, yeah, so it's a wonderful uh, step to push us closer uh, to our Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about savoring God in, in your book, uh, Savoring Scripture. Uh, Andy yeah. Abernathy gives an illustration as uh, relative to your own health and your diet. <laughs> and I do feel a little sorry for you, just so you know. But uh, Yeah, yeah I, I, I confess in there that I'm a pescatarian. That means I, I will only eat, the only meat I eat is, is fish. So it's out of health reasons. Yes. Um, and, but I, I will often be in charge of the grill when we're having people over. So I'll be grilling out hamburgers and hot dogs <laughs> yeah. and make this great meal, but then I don't get to eat any of it. And that, uh-huh. that's kind of what it's like if you just do steps two, three, and four, where you're trying to read a passage, it's original context in light of the whole Bible, and you've just done all this work. But imagine that if you played up the beautiful uh, spread of burgers, and then you have to walk away from it, you don't eat it. Mm-hmm. Well, now you've done the hard work. Now it's time to savor God. And, and I invite people at that time in this step to pray to God through what the Scripture's saying. Praise God in light of who He's showing Himself to be. Just meditate and contemplate in His presence about who He is. So this is an opportunity to really, uh, yeah, savor uh, that meal in Scripture that you've um, been uh, studying. Yeah. Well, we're down to step six, but we're also out of time, which is just such a disappointment for me. I was hoping to squeeze them all in, but you've given us a lot to think about. And step six is called a faithful response. And all I can say, Andy, is I'd just love to have you back on the show. We can talk about this all over again. Yeah, would love to talk to you about it more. Yeah, so it's great being on with you, Bill. Yeah, this, to you. you're a complete delight. So thank you very much yeah. and have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Andy Abernathy has been my guest. His book is Savoring Scripture, a six-step guide the studying the Bible. I'm going to spend some time with that book this weekend. We'll take a break. When we come back, Jessica Harris is going to join us. She's written a book called Quenched, Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. So that's probably not for young ears. We'll be right back. 
Okay, maybe a small heads up. Our uh, discussion that we're about to have uh, will have some adult themes. You've got very young ears. It may be a good time to turn the volume down and catch the podcast in its entirety. And you can always do that at MyFaithRadio.com. My guest is uh, Jessica Harris. She's a writer and a speaker and has uh, created um, a blog for Christian women struggling with pornography and sexual sin. Her book is called Quenched. Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. Hello, Jessica. Hello, Bill. How are you? I am, uh, you know, happy that you're uh, with us today. It's a difficult topic. I thought just men had issues with lust. Right. <laughs> common common misconception. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So I'd love for you maybe just to give us a, a little share about your story with this addiction and, and why you think it's important to... Uh, for this uh, this book that you've written. Absolutely. So my my story is that I grew up in a Christian home, a conservative Christian home, grew up in the church, and I was exposed to pornography online when I was 13. And I'm an older millennial, so this is back in the day of, of dial-up and floppy disks. Um, and I was just researching for school. I was not searching for anything that had anything to do with sex or that topic. Uh, and a porn video was on one of the, on one of the websites that I had found. And so um, I clicked on that video just cause I was clicking through videos as one does. Even nowadays, we kind of like scroll through social media and just mindlessly watch things. And so I was clicking through different videos and watching them. And one of them happened to be a, a video of hardcore pornography and that, triggered pop-up after pop-up after pop-up that I couldn't seem to close out of, and it drew me into an actual website. And at the time, it was like, oh, this is what everyone's been hush-hush about. You know, this mm-hmm. is, my family didn't talk about it. At church, this is the middle of the purity culture movement. At church, it was the beginning and the end of the conversation was just don't have sex until you're married. And so for me... At 13, I thought, well, this isn't, this isn't technically sex. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong by watching this. Like, I'm not going to get pregnant. I'm not going to get an STD. Like, I am totally safe, and this is fine to do this. So it became a hobby of mine, um, and then eventually, within a, a few years, became a full-blown, I would call it an addiction, where I was calling my mom to lie to her about why the internet would be tied up. The phone would be tied up all afternoon. I would rearrange my life as much as I could as a 17 year old around it. And eventually it started to affect my life where I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. My grades were suffering in school. And I thought, you know, I need to probably tone this back a little bit. Like I need to get this under control. So I tried to stop. I tried to cut myself off at two hours max instead of the four or the five that I would do after school of watching videos online. I tried to just do one or two and it, I couldn't stop. I found that I couldn't stop. And so I'm 17. I'm still going to church, like still in a Christian family. And I'm going, who on earth do I go to, to ask for help for this? Like, I don't know 
who to talk to about this because no one's talking about this. No one that I, in, in my brain, because no one was talking about it, no one else knew about it. Like no one in my life knew that this even existed. And so then I started searching for help online and everything I found was for women or for men. And so I thought, man, am I the only woman in the world who has managed to find this? Is this not a normal thing for women to to do? Now what do I do? Because now not only is my church not talking about this at all, but there's nothing out there for someone like me. So what on earth am I supposed to do? And that started this journey of trying to figure out how I was going to break free. And I went out to off to a Christian college and was caught there. And I was initially very happy that I was caught because I thought, okay, a Christian college will have seen this before. They deal with tons of, of young women. And so they'll, have, they'll know what to do. They'll know how to help me. And instead I was met with, we know this wasn't you. Women just don't have this problem. And it just started to heap on shame in my life. And I thought, wow, I really am the only woman in the world. And because I'm the only woman in the world, I'm sorry, God, I guess there's no way that you could really love me. And so at 17, grew up in a Christian home, I gave up. And I thought, if I can't be the good Christian girl who used to be addicted to pornography, then I don't have a choice. I'm going to have to be the porn star who used to be a Christian. Like in my brain, that was the only thing that made sense was, was giving up and giving in. And if you can't be them, you just join them. And so that that silence and that shame and that there's no way that women can have this problem just led me down this path. I didn't want to go down, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. Wow. Jessica Harris is my guest and her book is called Quenched, Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. So Jessica, um, maybe you would give us some of these signposts of shame and why, why it's so important to be uh, recognizing them. Right. So in the book, I go through and I talk about um, the three signposts of shame as presented by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their book, The Cry for the, the Cry of the Soul, which is a book about shame. And Dan is a, a legendary voice in the, in the field of pornography and sexual desire. So the first of those is this absorption with self, which is, I just, it doesn't matter what people around me say. It doesn't matter what their character is around me, I am only concerned with my failures, my flaws, what I have done wrong. And that is the only thing that I can see. And so I'm, I'm worthless. I'm a fraud. I'm a hypocrite. It, it is an obsession with who I believe I am. And it doesn't matter that God is loving. It doesn't matter that my spouse is very gracious. It doesn't matter that this, this, my family would never disown me. I am obsessed with what I believe I've done wrong. The second is a flight from exposure. And we see this best in in Genesis, really, where Adam and Eve sin, and they cover themselves up from each other, and they also run and try to hide from God. And so we just don't want to be found out. And this is is the cover-up, in a way. It's the the belief that if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't love me. And so I have to protect whatever it is that I'm ashamed of. And for me in my life, this looked like becoming an even more quote unquote perfect Christian and the good Christian girl, because I did not want to be found out. And I did not, I would do anything. I would break off relationships if it meant 
protecting this secret. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is violence. Um, And that sounds like what, but not necessarily like physical violence and not necessarily geared towards others. It can also be towards yourself. And so this is just anger and rage and you are, you're cutting off relationships, you're lashing out with people or you're just harming yourself. So for me, I did resort to self-harm at one point in my story when I was struggling so much to try to break free. It just felt like, man, I, I need to discipline and punish myself in order to be able to, to get out of this. Um, it also manifested as anger towards other people. I was actually sent to anger management counseling in college because I was, I would get so angry with people. And I think it was because if you really knew what was going on, you, you wouldn't care about me. So I'm going to make you not care about me in a way. Mm. I'm going to make sure that you, you don't. A preemptive strike. Exactly. Exactly. Uh. <laughs> if you knew, you wouldn't like me, so I'll make you not like me in advance. Right. I'll make sure that you never try to like me. Exactly. Right. Um, wow, is that counterproductive? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. But in the moment, it makes total sense because shame presents itself as something that's trying to protect you uh-huh. from getting your heart broken. And so if you think that someone getting close is going to be detrimental to you, like they're going to figure out what you're you're doing then it makes sense to go, well, you need to stay away. And if you try to get close, I'm going to keep pushing you mm-hmm. away. And if you seem to be more persistent than that, then I'm going to hurt you so that you will stay away. And it's just mm. it's one, of the, one of the counterproductive things that shame just does. Jessica, would the word rejection come up? You would think, they would reject me, so I'm going to go ahead and reject them before they can reject me. Absolutely. I think that that's a really good way of, of looking at it. Like you, if I, if you knew this about me, if you knew that I wasn't the perfect Christian girl, then you would not be my friend. You would not be interested in me. At one point I was, I I thought my family wouldn't even (laughs) want to be around me anymore. And so it is, it's this cutting off of other people. I'm going to cut you before you can, you can cut me. Like I'm going to, I'm going to take care of this. I'm in control of this. You're in control. That that's the thing I was Mm going to say. It's a control issue because you get to then reject them and you can go back to your isolation and your self survival, protecting your secrets. um, And then they can't reject you. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about um, you talk about false freedom instead of true freedom. I want to know what the difference is. So in the, in the book, Quench, I walk through the narrative of John 4 and the woman at the well. And we all know, if you've grown up in church, you know the story. Like, Jesus is living water, and everyone's all happy. But when Jesus offers that to the woman, he, he offers the living water, and he says, whoever drinks of this water in the well will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. And she responds in a way that I've always found interesting. She says, give me this water so that I don't thirst, and I don't have to come here anymore. Mm-hmm. And that, like, that's not what's going to happen. You know, it's, it's not, you're still going to need water for other things. And so you're still going to have to make this walk. And if that walk represents her shame, he's not, he's not necessarily in that offer, freeing her from that the way she thinks he is. Mm-hmm. So he's not, he's not piping this living water to wherever she stands. And I think sometimes when we want freedom, what we want is freedom to stay stuck where we are. And so instead of getting free from pornography, for instance, we just go, I just want freedom from all the judgment and the shame. I need people to stop judging me for this. I need people to just accept that this is who I am and this is how I am. 
and there's nothing wrong with this, and I want to kind of cut out the shame. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by cutting out those people who we think are shaming us. And so we cut out our families. We cut out our friends. We cut out God. And we just, and we say, ha, now I'm free to live the way I want without all of these judgy people around me. But Mm -hmm. what we've done is we've just isolated ourselves. And that's not... That's not the freedom that God no, offers us. No. <laughs> idols, are, are, idols are cruel masters, aren't they? They are. They are. They're terrible masters. Mm-hmm. So I try to encourage people that freedom happens in community, and grace calls us into relationship. So if whatever you're experiencing is driving you away from relationship, that's not of God. Like God's a God of reconciliation. And so He wants to draw us close and draw us in and restore broken things. And so if whatever path you're on is to just live with your broken things and to cut away people, then that's not, that's not God drawing you down that path. Mm -hmm. And Jessica, I love that you went into John chapter four, because it's really a a wonderful illustration of how all of us are, are looking for acceptance and and intimacy and unconditional love. Mm Mm-hmm. So I like that. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back more with Jessica Harris. Her book is called Quenched, Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and Sexual Shame. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. If you just jumped in the car or turned on the radio, I just want to give you a heads up. Our content today is uh, sensitive. And if you have little ones, little ears, it may be a okay time to turn the volume down and check out our podcast later. So having said that, I'll pause just for a second and then uh, bring back Jessica Harris. She is my guest who authored a book called Quenched, Discovering God's Abundant Grace for Women Struggling with Pornography and sexual shame. So I want to go back to the women at the well encounter on John 4, Jessica, because you write in your book that some some of us fear an encounter with God. Say more about that. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> um, I think a lot of us, when we think of, of coming to God, and I, I obviously deal a lot with women, but I think this can be a universal experience, and no matter what you struggle with, we can be afraid of his judgment or his frustration. And I think for this book, my heart in writing this book was so many women were coming to me and saying, I don't even want to open my Bible. I don't even like, what's the point of praying? God's just mad at me. Mm-hmm. He's just done with me. He probably thinks I'm gross. He probably thinks I'm disgusting. He probably thinks I'm a hypocrite. And I just picture him in heaven saying something like, why are you trying to come to me? Like, I, I want nothing to do with you. So we, we fear that rejection that we were talking about in the first part, but on a cosmic level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what does it feel to be completely rejected by God? You know, and that's, that's a terrifying 
thought. And so it's better in people's minds to just stay distant because then you don't know, right? You, you, you're not rejected if you don't even try. And so they stay distant from God and they don't want to try to have a relationship or have that interaction with him because then they can imagine that maybe he wouldn't reject them. But there's this fear that if I, I do try to have a relationship with God or if I do reach out that he will reject me and completely cast me off. And then what, then what do I do when that's not his heart for us at all? Again, his, his heart is reconciliation and to draw us into, into himself and to, to come into relationship with us. And his, his heart, even from the beginning has always been for us and has been for pursuit. And he has, he has come after us, not like in a bad way, like I'm going to get you, but like in a, in an, I'm going to rescue you. I'm coming for you. I'm coming to, to set you free. But we just, we have it in our minds and whether that's just sometimes the church cultures that we grew up in. I grew up in a very conservative church culture where there was this fear that if you didn't meet the standard, like there was a set of rules to meet. And then if you didn't meet those, then God wanted nothing to do with you. Mm. And that's just a terrifying thing to think of for some people. It's just, a, and it's not the truth either, but it's just very fear-inducing for some. Jessica, what is the firefighting mode, and how can we prevent the fire in the first place? Right. So the the idea of the firefighting mode is just something that I, as we're talking about Jesus being a living water, so often I think we kind of keep that in our back pocket as like a break in case of emergency. <laughs> and so it's, it's, oh no, now I'm sitting down at the computer. Okay, let me shoot up a quick prayer because Jesus, you know, needs to save me from, from this fire that has now started of, of lust or whatever sin you might struggle with, whether mm-hmm. it's anger or envy, it's not just this. But we, we tend to just kind of pull out our prayers and our walk with God or the whole walking in the spirit thing in the heat of the moment when we're already tumbling down a hill into failure. And what we're, what God promises us is not like a fire extinguisher. (laughs) That's not what he's, that's not what he's giving us. And I, I say in the book, like when all you're doing is stuck like fighting fires, then you're just left with a bunch of burned dead things. Like you're not left with the abundant life that, that Christ promises us. And so how do we make that connection between the living water that Jesus offers and the abundant life of Christ? And and you do that by dwelling, by abiding, by letting this living water be a stream that runs through constantly, as opposed to something that we just keep in our back pocket and pull out in case of emergency. It has to be what we are dwelling in and what we are abiding in. And I think so many of us Christians, when we're fighting various sins and struggles in our lives, we don't abide in Christ. We don't take a drink, if you will, from that living water. We don't let Jesus flow through our lives and impact our lives and nourish our lives. We just live our lives as we always have, but then we think we have this cool little tool in times of need. And yes, he is there for us in times of need. And yes, he does promise us a way to escape. 
but he promises us so much more. And so many of us are missing out on that because we're just looking to him as an emergency escape hatch when what he's really wanting is not just to help us escape in times of temptation, but to help us live a life where temptation doesn't mean to take root, where it can't, where it can't draw us in, where things are so saturated with him and so full of him that they're, they can't catch fire, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you will. And so I, I say in the book, like what, what doesn't catch fire very well, and as well as things that are wet, like things that are damp, things that are, you know, if you cut down a tree, you can't light it on fire right away unless it was already dead. Like mm-hmm. you, it has to dry out. And so when we are staying in Christ and dwelling in him and letting him fill us, we will find that the temptation loosens its grip and it's less and less. Mm-hmm. Jessica Harris is my guest. She's written a book called Quenched and grew up in a conservative, God-fearing Christian home. And at 13, found herself gravitating into the world of pornography and became kind of a full-blown addict. And even in your book, uh, Jessica, you write a letter to those who don't struggle. Now, why did you feel that that was important to include in your book? Because I think that some people, when you when you don't, have the struggle, especially when it's something like this, right? We're not really talking about women struggling with this. This is a relatively, not a new problem, but a new discussion that we're having. So people who aren't in it might not really know how they can help. (laughs) And the problem is they also don't understand how they can hurt. Mm -hmm. And so I really felt like it was important to talk to those people and to encourage them. I wanted it to be an encouragement to people that, hey, this doesn't have to be part of your story for you to be able to help a woman who is living this story. Like you are able to communicate grace to her because that's really the point. The point of it all is that these women who are struggling with this is such as a struggle that is shrouded in so much shame and so much stigma that they just feel like even God can't even handle what they're going through right now. And as Christians, we have this great opportunity to say that that's not true, that there's grace for this struggle as well, and that we are not afraid to have this conversation. And so I wanted to emphasize that because for me, the difference between my the deepest part of my struggle and my journey of freedom was two different conversations. And one was women don't have this problem. This, this wasn't you, this couldn't have been you. And the other was, we know that some of you have this problem, we want to help you. And so the contrast of those two conversations was really life and death for me. And so I wanted to encourage people who might not know about this struggle, who might not have had this struggle, to know that they still have a role to play in helping women find life and freedom. Mm-hmm. I would guess, Jessica, there's more women that would have sexual shame than a pornography addiction. However, if you don't struggle with either one of those and you want to have a a conversation in your church and maybe change the conversation from zero conversation to something, um, how can, how can women uh, bring that conversation to the church? Right. I think the best, I I tell people they're always welcome to throw me under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, they're always welcome to talk about me and see, <laughs> like, get a temperature of, like, what the church thinks about that. Um, 
But honestly, if you're someone who's in leadership and you're able to have that conversation, it's as easy as the word and. That's what I tell pastors. It's as easy as saying men and women can struggle with this. Um, Talk to your sons and your daughters about what they're doing online. But really, we have a blueprint even in the Gospels and a lot of good opportunities, I think, as we look at the life of Jesus to see how he interacts with women with sordid pasts, if you will. And you've got the woman caught in adultery. You have the woman at the well here. You have the woman who anoints his feet with oil, and there's debate about what her issue was, but the consensus is that the man standing there said, oh, if he had any idea who she was, he wouldn't be letting her worship him right now. Then you have the woman with the issue of blood, and while that's not a sexual sin per se at all, she would have been ceremonially unclean Mm -hmm. and outcast from the population. So you have these examples of how Jesus interacts with these women. And we talk about these stories. We preach about these stories. And so I feel like it's as easy as making a side note, even in that sermon, of like, hey, you know, this is, this is God's heart for all of us. But in this story, it's specifically for a, a woman caught in adultery. And I think just in the church, we struggle so much with believing that Christ, the good Christian women, you know, wearing white on their wedding day could have these kinds of issues. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's just as easy as, as breaking it down and saying women are also created to be like we are sexual creatures as well. Mm-hmm. And that there's nothing wrong or dirty or bad or, you know, Proverbs 5 harlot about us yeah. <laughs> having God-given desires and drives. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're talking about Proverbs 31, you can also say like, hey, the Proverbs 31 woman also, you know, was a sexual woman. Yeah. You know, she wasn't non-sexual. Yeah. So. Jessica, thank you so much. It was a delight having you on. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having you me. Bet. Jessica Harris, her book is quenched. We'll take a break and back with Dr. Jeremiah Johnston and the peace of God. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.